All right, Will, it's been a while. It's been a bit since we recorded, yeah. Yeah, so Newsflash season one is over, and this is the interseason. We can call it, what, season 1.5 special. This is going to be a short episode. We're going to talk about the last season, what's going to happen the next season. We did a listener survey. Uh, We're going to answer some questions from the nice people who responded to that. But first, we have our first patron on our Patreon, uh, Joseph Elliott. He is a formalist friend. Welcome to the club, Joseph. If anyone else is interested in joining up, please go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash filmformally. And if you want to support us, but you don't feel able to give money on Patreon, then that's fine. Just like interact with us on Twitter. Say hi. Share the podcast. And that's the last we'll speak of that. So info about season two. We're going to be starting back up on September 22nd. Hopefully this episode will tide everyone over over our huge, long three-week season gap. Oh, no. Unbearable. Uh, we did a survey. Uh, we got some really, I think, helpful responses. So thank you, honestly, so much, everyone who responded to that. Uh, mm-hmm. It really helps us guide the direction of the podcast. Oh, yeah. Of course, towards the end of the questionnaire, we gave you the opportunity to ask us some questions. Let's do those. Do you want to do those, well? So first question. And again, these are all anonymously sent, so I'm, we're not going to source them. But if it's your question, you can feel privately affirmed. <laughs> so question one, why do you do what you do? How did the podcast come to be and why? We wanted to start a podcast up for a long time now. It's kind of one of these many, many like side projects that get backburnered or put aside for one reason or another. We got started kind of a few years ago, but we didn't really have time to properly set up the podcast to commit to a recording schedule to fully work out what our gimmick was going to be. So honestly, like so many people during this pandemic, it just enabled us to make the time to do it the way we wanted to, where we could really plan it out, think about what we wanted the podcast to be, figure out like, what do we miss in film podcasts that we would like to put out ourselves? It's a, it's a classic pandemic project thing <laughs> i just want to have these conversations with you will and with other people i, I want to have an excuse to focus on a topic for a long time because that's a really great way to learn and as a teacher i teach um i like to if possible share that learning with other people because it's fulfilling <laughs> i've always liked the idea of being able to have conversations where everybody in it brings in a little bit of research and a little bit of an elevated commitment to the conversation. And that's just hard to do in day-to-day conversations. It's hard to put together like a movie club, that sort of thing. So podcast is just a great structure to do it. Yeah. It's it's also been very therapeutic throughout COVID. It's been a good oh, yeah. method of enforced socialization because oh, yeah. <laughs> I am not a natural socializer. At least I'm not motiv- naturally motivated to. So this really helps. Yeah. Um, it was a nice pairing of opportunity with global calamity so someone asked tell us about your best and worst cinema experiences have you guys ever complained about the presentation to the projectionist my best experience was probably seeing napoleon uh in san francisco in 2012 um the six hour evil gaunts film uh it was completely unavailable in north america at the time uh we saw it with the <laughs> with a live orchestra conducted by carl davis uh, in San Francisco, and it was amazing. I guess it's technically Oakland, but anyways. I think there's still no way to watch it in North America. 
without importing a Blu-ray. Unless I lend you my Blu-ray. The United Kingdom, yeah. The BFI is a beautiful Blu-ray of it, yeah. and it's worth getting like a region-free Blu-ray player to watch it. It's an amazing, amazing movie. What was your best cinema experience, Will? I, I assume it's different. <laughs> Napoleon is absolutely up there. There was also a year or so ago, Devin and I put together our reconstruction of The Good, The Man, and The Ugly that we often talk about, and we got invited to screen it and to do a quick talk on it afterwards. Um, and that was absolutely a favorite cinema experience. Also, this is similarly self-centered, but when we screened our film, The Martyr, uh, that was one of my favorite cinema experiences, just because it, w it was the only film that I've directed that could be properly called a comedy in any sense. But it's also a movie with tons of awkward moments and, and really tense, dark comedy. So just getting to be in a room, kind of experiencing the audience, sometimes not knowing when to laugh and sometimes laughing at stuff yeah, that I didn't expect. But it's just it, it was good. It was a, it felt great making a room really tense during a movie. Worst cinema experience. I haven't had many bad ones, but I've had awkward festival experiences, certainly. Sure. Like um, when I was watching a experimental film that I don't much care for at a certain film festival, um, mm -hmm. I was going through a pretty bad head twitch day. I have Tourette's, so my head twitches a bit. Um, and this oh, person yes. behind me offered to put their uh, hand on my head to calm me down <laughs> and like would not take no for an answer. Uh, it was weird. And then I had to sit through the rest of the god-awful experimental film. Um, and, uh, so yeah, th that was probably my worst that sticks out in my head. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. Don't, if someone has a twitching disorder, please don't offer to, you know, broach their personal space. And yeah. Insist don't on doing correct so. it for them. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, you know, there's, there's something to be said about if you are really actively disrupting the movie for other people, that's one thing, but like the head in the seat in front of you twitching is like not, it's such a minor Anyway, for me, I, I mean, usually, yeah, like cinema experiences are kind of a water off a duck's back thing for me where if it gets screwed up, whatever. Probably the, the, the least pleasant one for me was when I was watching Elle, which is a Paul Verhoeven movie. Oh, this. Oh, that was horrible. Okay, go in. Yeah, and there was, there was a, there, there's a rape scene in Elle and... I, I'm not going to describe it. It's a pivotal scene. It's obviously extremely, extremely unpleasant to watch. And partway through this scene, suddenly these flashing lights went off in the theater. And for a moment, I thought it was just a technique the film was doing, just like flashing white uh, intermittently during the scene to make it more disturbing and, and visceral. And, and, I, and I thought it was working. And then I remembered that this theater, that's actually the fire alarm how it starts is just flashing lights and then eventually the sound alarm goes off and we all got evacuated and we got to come back in the building and finish the movie 15 minutes later but the projectionist had moved the movie back to as far back as they were supposed to as a projectionist. Yeah, five minutes right yeah yeah and but that meant that the instant that the movie started up again it was right back at the beginning of that scene and the the collective moan from the audience was like the only respite was just the community <laughs> around that moan. And, and that's my worst cinema experience even like it wasn't that bad for me. Like I sat through it. I got it was fine. But just knowing that there were going to be people in the audience who 
were kind of going like, okay, this is really tough for me, but I can make it through the scene once who had to sit through that again. It sucks. Yeah. Have you guys ever complained about the presentation to the projectionist? Oh, yeah. I feel like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think yeah. even more specific would be, have I ever complained about the presentation of my own films? The answer is yes, <laughs> repeatedly. Yeah. Um, I remember that the first time our first film at TIFF played and they played in the wrong aspect ratio and I had to run out Go, you know, tell the usher at the outside they have the wrong aspect ratio, and yeah. then they restart. I mean, they were nice about it. They restarted. It. They were remarkably amenable, but that was probably the most memorable. There was one time where I won't name the theater, but they were showing a print of Doctor Strange Love, and it was just so beaten up. It was like it was unwatchable. the The sound was unlistenable, and it was clearly just a print they had had and run tons of times and. I ended up asking for my money back and saying, listen, this is this is not a watchable <laughs> version of the movie. And that that's extreme for me. Like it has to be really bad for me to. And I've I've complained. I, I complain about sound more than image to the projection. Oh, yeah, I, I think sound is a lot more. Usually it's more dodgy because the volume control is is a is a very personal thing. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, um, like, and you have to be careful, right? Like, it's not, you can't just go and say the sound sounds muddy. Like, when that happens, I just assume it's a bad mix. Like, I'm not going to complain about a Christopher Nolan movie sound to the projectionist. It's usually pretty easy to go like, oh, well, clearly the right speaker's blown out. Or, you know, you got this playing. Like, I remember the second time I saw Mad Max Fury Road, yeah. it was just crushingly loud. It was... Yeah. Um, but I also want to actually mention that both of us have worked extensively as projectionists. Right. You know, it's even modern digital projection, especially in repertory cinemas, is still a very like case by case personal thing and yeah. be nice to your technicians please yeah <laughs> you know? yeah it's it's fine to it's fine to bring up an issue and complain um and even to be a little bit what's the word i'm looking for assertive a little bit assertive and and to insist no like i think the sound really is quite bad but ultimately you've got to be nice to your projectionist <laughs> and <laughs> you you do not know what they're putting up with in any given circumstance and worst case scenario, if you have a huge problem with it, like just take the mulligan and ask for your money back. It sucks, but yeah. they'll, they'll usually do it for you. Like it is, people will always, virtually always refund a ticket over <laughs> having to listen to you uh, complain to them. Uh, or just watch movies at home like me. Yeah. And like all of us right now, I guess, but me yeah. my whole life. Let's move on. Next question. What one film... Oh, I love this question. I love this one. I, and I don't have a good answer. What one film would you recommend people show to someone who is not a cinephile? Someone who only watches whatever commercial film is playing and has yet to appreciate the medium as an art form. Ah. This is the most annoying kind of answer you can give to a question like this, but I, I, I somewhat take issue with the premise. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think that we are often way too... I'm, part of the idea of starting this podcast and part of my thought, like this is fundamental to how I think about teaching and communicating theory of movies to people, is that people are so much more plugged into and aware of, not necessarily consciously, but they are aware of on a certain level how movies work, how they're functioning. They are engaging with them as artistic objects way more than I think we give credit for. Like, it's not like this is poetry where most people don't seriously engage with poetry except outside, except maybe arguably in the context of song lyrics. People watch so many movies. People are actually pretty, they, they might not have developed a lot of solid critical reasoning around movies, but I think people 
generally appreciate the medium as an art form. If people enjoy movies, they enjoy the medium as an art form. I think what the question is getting at or how I would approach the question is less someone who hasn't appreciated the medium as an art form and more someone who hasn't developed a more critical appreciation of the art form and or someone who hasn't really stretched out in terms of what kind of movies they watch and and what kind of scope they look for in the movies they watch so that that's just i think and i think that's worth bringing up because that's important to my answer because it really does it depends so much like when i was first trying to get into i i really make an effort to get into as many genres of music as possible and years and years ago when i was trying to get into metal i just could not figure a way in and then i happened to hear a Metallica song, Seek and Destroy, and it sounded a lot like certain punk songs I'd heard or pop songs I'd heard. And it's not actually not a great song, but it was just this light bulb moment of like, oh, I get it. This is like this, mm. and it adds this quality on top, like the, all, the, all the gain in the guitars and, and uh, certain elements of the vocals have been pushed further in this direction. Oh, okay, I think I kind of get this. I think I can like <laughs> understand how to appreciate metal more. So it's it's so it's going to depend like crazy. And my answer is pretty much rooted in my experience teaching. Um, last year, I was asked to kind of put together a curriculum of films to show first year film students at the school I teach at to, you know, give them a grounding in film aesthetics, whatever that means. And mm-hmm. I chose the following five films. Chunking Express by Wong Kar Wai. To Be or Not to Be by Ernst Lubitsch. Gimme Shelter by the Maisels Brothers and Charlotte Zwerin. The Cleaners and I by Agnes Varda. And Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. Um, and the reactions to each of them change every time. But my thinking is generally people are trained to watch a certain type of movie because that's what's kind of put forward by culture and by the people around them in general. I try and go, okay, what's something that is recognizable enough to a someone who's just kind of finding their foot in the medium, uh, but still challenges enough preconceptions uh, that it will maybe open them up to new things, right? Like Chunking Express has an aesthetic that has become, since it's making, very familiar. It's not North American, <laughs> not English language, and it does a whole lot with structure that is fascinating. To be or not to be. Extremely funny comedy about Nazis. Great. That's accessible. <laughs> but it's also a film by, you know, someone who's been dead for 70 years. <laughs> so, it's you know, you get, yeah, it's old. That's, and that's the thing, right? It's, 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 again, it's, I often uh, compare classical Hollywood realism to a dead language. It's like Latin, you know, it's, it's something where you have to kind of emulate what they were thinking to really interface with it. Gleaners and I, <laughs> none of the students liked. I don't, mean, <laughs> I don't get it. Okay, my students are wrong. Give me shelter. I, th- I think documentaries are tough. Actually, um, give me shelter gets wildly diverse reactions because um, it's you know a very hardcore direct cinema film. And do the right thing. Everyone loves. Um, people tend to not have a pleasant experience watching it, but they tend to value it. And I think that's probably because it's new, American, um, and deliberately designed to be accessible. <laughs> uh, again, Spike Lee combines highly accessible cinema with agitprop in very clever ways. That's my kind of canonical set of picks for films that I, sh- you know, professionally show people who um, are less experienced than ourselves. 
like I said, you just you find something that is a neighbor to what they already like, but that in some way or another breaks their paradigm of how they think about movies or what kind of movies they seek out. And you just push them in that direction. And hopefully eventually they get used to the idea of, oh, it's fun to look at stuff that is totally different from what I've seen before. Uh, if you if I had to pick one movie, it's going to change day to day. I guess today I would do two days, one night by uh, the Darden brothers. It's a good pick. Just a really great drama with really interesting and somewhat different from what you might be used to techniques if you're only into mainstream drama. Uh, also, like one of my favorite movies of the last decade. <laughs> so, that's my short answer. Two days, one night. Next question. How can an independent filmmaker make money here? What can a film set do to be more ethical and less exploitative? The first question is like, I wish I wish I had an answer, man. <laughs> like, I, I, there's, I, there's two kinds of answers to this question. One is a filmmaker who has made money and thinks they've got it on lockdown, and and just kind of like says like, hey, here's the path I took. And you might not take exactly this path, but like this is a viable path to make money. And like my friends have done this and, mm -hmm. and, and I've done it. And then there's the kind of filmmaker who has not like made a living or a, a consistent income out of independent films and thinks, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I've gotten paid for a couple of my movies, but and like that's that's just where most of us are at. Like I've tried lots of ways yeah. of getting paid for making independent films and there's not a super consistent way if, if you're truly making the film independently and for yourself, there's not a super consistent way to do it. Like you can mm. try for grants. You can try for like, just, just look into different stuff and, and give it a shot. But like, I, I can't <laughs> offer a silver bullet. Be really suspicious when people go, this is the way to do it because that means it worked for them at a time and a place. And that time yeah. and a place usually doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Be really suspicious of that. Second, I can only really answer based on the observations of people around me. If I had to say what a pattern is in terms of who, am, who do I know that has a consistent income, and again, take this with a grain of salt, I'm currently running a film business that is not turning a profit, mostly because of COVID, but outside of your directing, directing is one thing, but have a specialty. Be yeah. really, really good at one at something, right? And market yourself as that, and find a niche for that and consistently work at that right um if and again i break that rule i split my time between color cinematography and occasionally direction and i think that's a lifestyle decision i've made but i don't think that's a smart decision <laughs> for in terms of if you want to make money um again maybe it's also worth pointing out that you don't have to base your whole life off of maximizing your income um necessarily right no. um and again this doesn't have to be like if you want to direct and write indie films it doesn't have to be that a lot of friends i have are editors in their day jobs and then they take a week off to make indie films every few months um some of them don't work in film like one of my favorite friends who's a genius local filmmaker is a mailman yeah, I do not right now make any kind of income off of filmmaking. <laughs> and freelancing's anyway. tough, and it's not for everybody, right? Yeah. It's, I, I personally like that lifestyle, but I don't know how long it'll last. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, who knows? Um, it's, it can be brutal. Yeah. 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 No silver bullet, but yeah, uh, finding a niche is good. Even then, yeah. no silver bullet. And that, that leads into the follow-up, which was what can a film set do to be less more ethical and less exploitative arguably this is the the like this was the defining question for me as to 
whether I wanted to become a filmmaker was, is it possible for me to consistently make movies and be around people who make movies and not just be in a maelstrom of ethical BS, right? Mm. Like, like I, I dealt with my fair share of that crap, especially in the early years of film school and right out of film school. And, and as a freelancer, I dealt with that quite a bit. I'm not saying I won't ever go back into freelancing, but it's definitely a reason why I at least am not a freelancer right now. It's tough. I mean, a, a huge factor is to really be mindful of who you're paying and not paying. And if you're getting paid for a movie you're making, then like you should not be the only one getting paid and nobody should not be getting paid. And if you are making a movie with people and nobody's getting paid, then you want to be sure that like everybody is all in everybody's completely on board with the project wants feed to work people with you. well yeah like feed them well be super nice to them actively ask for and take criticism and feedback about how you're treating everybody who you're making the movie with i i, I look at it through two lenses one is is the production ethical and is the thing you're making ethical which is just yeah. as important right um, yeah are you making something that deserves to exist representationally are you making something that will help you know generally help or not do harm yeah. um and that's a tougher question to answer than i think people give it credit for um are, are you just filling a space the creative space with a certain type of art that maybe doesn't need to continue to be made um that's that encompasses a lot of art so be really self-critical about whether the sacrifices you're asking of yourself and the people around you and of the space you're taking up whether the work that you're striving to make is a valid reason for people to make that sacrifice. Be really willing to question the standard Hollywood modes of production. Like we talked about this a little bit in our episode on small crews, but sets, the way that they're set up in Hollywood and in most professional film sets, it, this doesn't mean they have to be unethical, but the structure is pretty militaristic by nature and most militaristic power structures very easily lead to people feeling unappreciated or people being exploited or people being they're also really um they're really inaccessible to people who don't fit a certain profile of physical and mental ability in a certain yeah. way and that's the right? other thing be inclusive right yeah like and i actually think the inclusivity part is a real sticking point in a lot of yep. film sets that i've either interacted with or observed a lot of the times they're not consciously so but really the result is they're designed to exclude a certain type of person yeah and that is most types of people outside of this one personality type that thrive in that situation. <laughs> yeah. And th this is something that I personally need to get better at and I'm working on being better at thinking about how to make movies um, that suit different kinds of collaborators, thinking about bringing on different kinds of collaborators, period, when the film gets a bit larger scale mm -hmm. than just me and two or three other people. Next question. Who are your favorite film critics and or scholars and why? Can I dodge this question? Because <laughs> I have a really hard time picking favorites just in, in these because I tend to not really follow individual film scholars and critics, but I follow subjects. So I'll read a whole bunch about a technique or a filmmaker. But as far as individual film philosophers and film critics, thinkers, academics go... I haven't read consistently enough from a single person enough to really have, oh yeah, this person I tend to agree with, you know, that sort of thing. So I'm going to dot that question. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, on this podcast, we're all about an omnivorous curiosity, and that part of that means that sometimes you go a mile wide and an inch deep in certain ways. Like yeah. our our goal is to That's go like put it. wide and deep, but like, I mean, if you're looking for someone who will kind of broaden your perspective of film criticism, like a, a kind of starting point to do that, or or a point of continuation. <laughs> Then we've had we've had a couple people on honestly who I think are great to follow. Like Tanya Goldman is a super interesting and fun to follow scholar. So is Peter Labuza. Uh, uh, Josh Cabrita is like such a thoughtful writer. <laughs> like he did our uh, Vancouver Cinema podcast that we did near the end of the season. Uh, we didn't have him on the season, but Nick Pinkerton is a good one to read and, and a good none of these people are people I agree with all the time necessarily, but they're people who are just really good at challenging your paradigms like Nick Pinkerton can even be very crusty. I'm sure he would be the first person to admit that and I'm not always on board with his takes, but like there is absolutely a place for the Tony takes and the very oppositional stance he tends to adopt <laughs> towards stuff he doesn't like. And the other thing about all these people, I mean, this is people, people say bad things about Twitter a lot and, and film Twitter or one kind of Twitter or another. But the secret of Twitter is that like you can choose whose tweets you see on Twitter. <laughs> and a lot of these people who I'm mentioning are like people where you should follow them and mm -hmm. you should take a look at the people they follow and retweet. And if they're people you like, you should follow them too. And that's how you're going to learn more about cool film critics and scholars. So yeah. a bit of a dodge, but it's it's kind of the same as like if someone asked like, what is your favorite movie? I would dodge that too. I'm not, I'm not good at laying down on individual favorites of things. Pet Sounds yeah. is probably my favorite album. That's about all I, all I got. Next question. Will you have an episode devoted to how cinema may change with YouTube, TikTok, etc.? Will the Oscars ever have a best YouTube video section? Do people consume YouTube more than films? Can YouTube replace films? Why are films important? This is a pitch. This is basically a solid pitch for it's an episode. It's a pitch for an episode. Yeah, yeah. We can do an episode on that. We um, could. I'm It's it's a it's a tough subject for me because I don't see a difference. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> in terms of what the the, the the elements of cinema that I care about, which is is a series of moving images in a row. Again, yeah, I'm a materialist. I'm sorry. YouTube has that in common with the cinema palaces, and they both have that in common with television. Yeah. Um, to me, the question of like Oscars for best YouTube video, it's almost like they have the Emmys for TV, and <laughs> so I'm you know they have the Webbies, I guess, for web videos. <laughs> but I, I I can't see the Oscars realistically doing that because they're so cloistered in their tradition of yeah. that. Yeah, like I, I would never get never get too hung up on awards categories for stuff like <laughs> like you can take it as like they're the winners or nominees as recommendations if you respect the awards body and in, in general. But it's I mean, the, the only stuff that I get worked up about is like, why is there a best actor and best actress split? And that's a whole thing we can get into. But I think there's a fun there's a lot of fundamentally problematic assertions underlying the idea that we should have a gender split for acting categories but but the but the underlying question is is really valid of like will or should you two be considered in the same breadth of cinema and the, and the answer is of course yeah like devin's saying youtube is not fundam more fundamentally different from cinema than tv is and i don't think tv is that fundamentally different 
from cinema. This comes well time time to the current. There's a Twin Peaks drama I hear going on. Oh uh, yeah, where people are like, it's Twin it's Twin Peaks movies, and I'm like, I don't. Who, yeah, we had that drama when it came out too. Uh, but I I also think there's another strand here that I find really interesting, which is the idea that will YouTube and home streaming video overtake completely eclipse the role of cinema or I mean cinemas in our diet of films and I can't and I, I, I've touched on this before but I come at this question from a weird place because to me it, it did long ago like home video for me is how I have largely experienced movies since I was like 10 so to me the the, the whole sanctity of cinemas has never held much emotional weight for me yeah. um, the idea of kind of YouTube replacing films to me i'm like oh i guess (laughs) i get what will be will be and what i really care about is uh, are the modes of production uh encouraged by such a thing do those result in better art or at least art that's as good and are they as ethical um and that's an open question thanks so much for the questions everybody yep if someone asks more questions on a survey after we record this then and the survey hasn't gone down yet, then we'll stick them into a future episode. So don't, don't panic if yours wasn't read. So I guess the last thing is the past season. Will, how'd it go? How do you feel? Yeah, I like the past season. There's, there's certain things about it where I look at it and I think, oh, I wish we had had a bit more of this and we had gone a bit more in this direction. Like, I wish we had a few more foreign language films, honestly. And we did okay for that in the last season, but... I mean, two of them were anime, which is fine. And I love anime and I want to do more episodes about anime because it's such an interesting area that so many people have interesting takes on. But I, I want to poke into other places and other other modes of cinema. One of our guests, Tanya, actually really was interested in doing an episode on the third cinema, and which is a whole thing in... Mm different regions of like Africa, Asia, South America. That would be great. It's such an interesting topic and we could do multiple episodes on it easily. And I would love to do more on that kind of thing. The other thing I kind of want to do a bit more of, I I really enjoy the big episodes we do where we talk about like modes of production, small crews, capitalism, Capitalism. the word cinematic. Those episodes are great and I love doing them. I mean, like maybe my favorite episode of the season, <laughs> just because it was my baby, I want more people to be aware of it. Go listen to Revisionist Audio. That is, that, that's the one I would push most people to listen to. But I would love to have a little bit more stuff where we do close analyses of films. The downside of that is that people kind of have to watch the film to get the full effect of the podcast. And, but I think that's a wor- worth a trade-off is if we say to people, hey, this is an obscure film you might not have seen but we think there's a lot of interesting things to say about it. And we think it's worth you going and watching this film just so that you can listen to this episode of the podcast. I'm just happy that we've managed to pull it off production wise. Yeah. (laughs) Given our lives and how chaotic the world is. I'm really proud of the fact that we managed to string 20 episodes together and only having a couple weeks off ever. We trade off editing duties. Uh, We tend to trade off kind of development duties for the episodes and I'm really happy with the kind of rhythm we have, and I'm learning a lot. Oh, yeah. We only ever had to, had to cancel a couple episodes, and those were both on account of my nervous breakdowns, so that's all good. <laughs> those were completely justified. G- going through, like, crazy mental health swings throughout this has resulted in equal parts, like, this 
recording schedule being a really positive and also just occasionally intersecting badly with you know mental health episodes so um i don't know i i want to keep going <laughs> yeah oh and i'm really glad it's been good for you on the whole i it's been a thing i've thought of when you've had those episodes is is the podcast hurting that or is the podcast helping uh, it's helping i think yeah. um the the way we can both be flexible with that in terms of recording and the expectations has been really healthy so that's nice yeah yeah. yeah, and it has been like such a huge learning thing. Like I'm right after we finish wrap up this recording, we're gonna go and record an episode on Sidney Lumet's Failsafe, which has long been like one of my absolute favorite films. And I'm I'm I learned a lot from the film this time from just watching it and like really trying to study it closely and think of interesting things to say and new angles on it for the podcast. I'm all so even the stuff where it's just let's do an episode on like one of my favorite things about one of my favorite movies that's still yeah next season just to reiterate we're coming back on tuesday september 22nd mm-hmm. uh resuming our usual weekly schedule for yep. our season two um what can we expect for that season what'll change will stay the same i uh, fundamentally other than the stuff i've already mentioned i don't think that much is going to hugely change I, a lot of the stuff I want to change about the podcast is more sort of loose formatting stuff. Like I want to, partly because of our Patreon setup and inviting listener questions in that medium, I want to have a little bit more different sections for that, like a, like a question section for if we have a good question. This is, this is kind of in the weeds stuff, but you've probably noticed if you listen regularly to the podcast that in the last few episodes... There's been more experimentation with little interstitial sounds, right? Like there's a little piano sound that I'm I'm not 100% happy with right now, but that just sort of breaks up sections of the podcast. That is one useful because it means that we don't have to edit it. So absolutely everything that we talk about flows naturally into the next thing we talk about. You can kind of have just like a little natural little break there. And the other reason why that's in there is so that the listener has like a chance to sort of like flush their head and kind of reset because it can be a lot to take in tons of flowing information at one time. So, but like that's kind of the level of like stuff I really substantively want to think about and and look into changing. As far as like the tone of the podcast goes, I'm really happy with it. I'm I'm really happy with being able to dive in deep to stuff and and still gag around a little bit with pals. Yeah, no, I I think um, season two we're not gonna. Our kind of long-term plan, assuming this has a long-term, is um, once essentially once we run out of stuff to talk about or things to say, or we run get bored with the current format, we'll change things up structurally. But for now, right. I really just want to see where we go. And yeah, we have some. We've been reaching out to more guests. We have a whole lot of way more episodes ideas than we do episodes in yeah. the, for the next season. So uh, yeah, I think I'm optimistic, and uh, hope if you're listening to this, you can join us for that. So that's our interseason recap. Come join us in two weeks for season two. We'll be pleased to have you with us, be you new or old as a listener. Well, that wraps that up. Paige Smith is our associate producer. Enjoyed today's podcast? Please subscribe to it and consider rating and reviewing us on iTunes. That helps us out a lot. If you're loving the podcast, please consider contributing to our Patreon over at patreon.com slash filmformally. 
We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. See you when the new season kicks off!